All right. Well, welcome. Good morning. Uh, it's Pastor Lars here, back again from Lord of Grace. It's good to have you all with me today. Uh, it is just me today. Uh, Caleb, my uh, super helpful uh, AV tech, is not with us today, so it's just going to be me operating everything myself. So if you see me looking down a little bit, uh, that's why. The other thing you're going to notice is it's probably going to take me a little bit more time to do the whole switchy-switchy with transitions and moving in the Bible verses and stuff like that because I'm operating everything myself today. So, uh, for example, uh, let me just run a quick test here. Uh, I know I'm not supposed to do this live, but um, let's see if I put that on three. No, no, two. That puts that one there. So if I want a Bible verse, let's see, let's fade. To, there we go. Okay. Um, all right. <laughs> Sorry about that. Little test. Okay. Well, welcome. Lent is here. Uh, and for Lent, what we're going to do is I'm going to change up a little bit of the Bible study I'm going to be looking at. And we're going to look at this theme of views of the cross. And what does it mean to understand how Jesus died, why he died, how were different people looked at it, uh, one of the things, you know, that, and I've said this in previous live streams, is this has been, for me, quite a, a, I don't know, a faith struggle, but certainly a theological struggle with trying to understand why Jesus was crucified and what it meant, and also trying to understand that phrase, he died on the cross for your sins. Uh, as I've, just to recap a little bit, uh, for me, the question was always, how do you get from cross to forgiving sins. Why couldn't God just say, I'm going to forgive your sins? He's repentant. He's asking for forgiving of sins. He changed his ways. I'll forgive him. Why does somebody have to die in order for God to be able to forgive their sins? Uh, and why does Jesus have to die? And why in that particular way? And um, what is it about a cross that leads to forgiveness of sins? That's been the theological issue that's kind of bugged me and pestered me for a long time. And I've, there's, a there, there's a, probably a pretty typical version of that that you've been taught. And, but actually, there's actually many understandings of how, what the cross means, many different ways of looking at it. And the classic view, the classic view, to sum it up simply, is uh, that when Adam and Eve ate that apple, sin entered the world, and because we are sinful, we are bound for hell. That's right, eternal hell. If we can't somehow, we, it doesn't matter how hard we try, we can make ourselves better, but we cannot possibly get rid of this sin stuff, and we're going to hell for it. And so, uh, so something must have, so somehow, well, let me back up. So we've got this sin stuff, we're bound for hell, and God is angry. God is angry at that sin, and God insists that sin must be punished. And so somebody has to pay. So this is the thinking with the classical understanding of atonement, uh, which is, that's the fancy churchy way of saying understanding uh, Jesus dying on the cross that God the Father was just so full of wrath that he couldn't possibly just forgive sins, somebody has to pay. 
A crime's been committed, a price must be paid. If God were to just forgive people for asking, then they would get away scot-free and there would be no payment, right? And God couldn't go without that payment. And so since the payment is, the normal payment would be eternal punishment, somebody has to suffer a punishment that is equivalent to an, every single person in the entire world going to hell forever. How, what punishment could possibly equal that grade of a punishment? I know God's own son getting tortured to death would be the one and only thing that would be a sufficient punishment to placate that unplacatable wrath. Now, if you're like me, um, and a lot of people through the ages have kind of looked at that and gone, wow, that makes God look pretty, un that's a pretty unforgiving God. Um, and uh, that, you know, we all have anger issues, but isn't part of the essence of forgiveness that we give up the idea that there must be some sort of price paid? Well, that, if you're like me, you've asked those questions. Well, there's a whole history of how we got uh, to this place where Jesus, who himself never says, I came to die for sins, or I'm dying to buy off the Father's wrath, or the Father is angry at me, so I must suffer to keep people from going to hell. Jesus himself doesn't use that kind of language. So that whole understanding of atonement isn't based on Jesus' own words, except for maybe a couple, and we'll look at those. It's based on the Apostle Paul, who came after and started started that language of atonement and wrath and ransom and price, it really got developed in the book of Hebrews and then in the and late Middle Ages, they took with it and ran with it. To now, it's, that's become the core essence of everything that Christianity is about for some people, right? That all of Christianity and all of faith is simply about one all-important end game, which is whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. And since sin condemns you to hell, the all-important and only important thing that really matters at the end of the day is what gets you out of the hell into the heaven. And so Jesus dying to get you from one to the other is really all that matters. And that's always been one of my complaints about the system is that at the end of the day, if the only thing that really matters is whether you go to heaven or hell, um, then why bother with all the other stuff? Who cares about this good person stuff? You know, who cares about how I live my life? Um, you know, do I, am I going to heaven or going to hell? That's all that matters. And again, Jesus didn't talk in those ways. So we're gonna look at some different ways that the cross has been understood over time. So not to belabor it too much longer. Let's start looking at a Bible verse here. Uh, let me see if I can switch this. I'll switch this over. Here we go. We'll start in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. I'll read through this. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders. He is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority grow, shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time onward. All right, so now we're going well, but we're going back into the Old Testament, right? What can we garner from the Old Testament about what Jesus was supposed to be and how they understood him? And 
The Old Testament has several passages, most of which are in the book of Isaiah, talking about um, a Messiah or passages that have been taken to be about a Messiah. You'll notice the word Messiah isn't in here. Isaiah 9 is what we read at Christmas. So if you're used to this, um, or if you're used to hearing the uh, Hallelujah Chorus, uh, wonderful counselor, that's where it comes from. So this would come, what's the basic idea? In the Old Testament, the Messiah's job was to be a new king, and primarily he was going to be a physically earthly king, that was the main understanding, uh, and he was going to have an actual literal throne over a geographic kingdom, and he would be a biological descendant of King David, who ruled back in the 900s BC, and he, there would be an independent Jewish state. And then this, the Messiah would come, and then his descendants would be the new lineage uh, extending King David's dynasty in perpetuity. So this was very much the understanding of the Messiah to begin with. It was very kind of, it was very literal, it was very concrete, and you can see that right here, right? It's, it's, it's uh, authority will rest on his shoulders, and what will he be called? He's got all these titles. There shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it. I think this is a very literal understanding of a kingdom. So what was the expectation? The Messiah would be a king. Uh, now let's go on to the next one. Again, I'm going to kind of rush through the Old Testament here. Zechariah 9, uh, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All right. Here's another Old Testament passage, right? Looking at this issue of who's the Messiah going to be. This is another passage taken to be about the Messiah. And everyone's supposed to rejoice and be triumphant. You'll notice uh, in verse 9 there, this he'll come in on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal, and Jesus on Palm Sunday will ride in on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal uh, in the Gospels. He'll ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That's not an accident, right? It's Jesus in, in many ways saying, I am the Messiah that was prophesied about in Zechariah. But what is he going to do, right? We read verse 9 on Palm Sunday. Do we read verse 10? He'll cut off the chariot and the war horse and the battle bow, and he'll command peace to the nations. So he's going to take away the weapons of war because he's going to rule everything, right? But is, this a, is he going to peacefully cut them off or is he going to violently cut them off? Is he going to cut them off through, you know, because they all choose to cut themselves off, because their hearts are changed, or is this going to be a physical battle uh, where sort of almost like a global empire is established? Well, the text leaves a lot of room to fill in. If you went back in history, most of the commentators most of the Old Testament commentators would have looked at this as, no, this is, this is very much a Messiah who's going to create, again, a physical kingdom. He's not just going to metaphorically break the battle bow, he's going to literally break the battle bow uh, with his own battle bows. So the picture is starting to be built 
in the Old Testament that there's a Messiah and he's going to be a king and he's going to be related to King David and he's going to create a physical kingdom, right? That's, that's, what, it's going, that's what it's going to tell us is coming here. All right, well, let's keep going. Let's do one more from the Psalms, one more of these Old Testament verses while we're at it here. Okay, Psalm uh, 89. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. My hand shall always remain with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Forever I will keep my steadfast love for him and my covenant for him will stand firm. I will establish his line forever and his throne as long as the heavens endure. Wow. So, again, two questions here. Is this about just the, old, the actual literal King David back in the 900s? Or is this about the new servant that's going to come? I, I tend to lean that it probably was mostly about the original King David. The psalm might actually have been written for his actual uh, presence. Uh, anointing with oil, that was how they crowned people for being king back in that time. But you have to notice, again, the violent imagery, right? I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. That's, you know, this is violent imagery. This is war. This is an actual king going to actual war, not spiritual warfare, actual physical warfare. And um, he's going to establish a, a line forever. His throne, again, is a spiritual throne, physical throne. I think he means it's a literal throne. I think that's what this one means. There are other verses in the Old Testament that you could look at for this. And um, let me get rid of that picture there. Uh, there's a lot of verses in the Old Testament you could look at to get into the question of what was the expectation that people had of the coming Messiah. And you will find that most of them point towards a more literal, physical uh, king who will have an actual throne over an actual geographic kingdom. The notion of spiritualizing the kingdom, where it was about uh, somebody who sort of suffered for us, of somebody who uh, would come along, that would come along, that would come along, and uh, those verses are there. Uh, but uh, this is the general, this is the, it was the predominant view, probably 90% or better of people at Jesus' time thought that the Messiah to come was going to be a military leader and start a military revolution. That's what he was supposed to be. Uh, and so the goal of the Messiah is understood mostly in the Old Testament, had very little to do with um, sin. The whole notion of the Messiah and sin, that the Messiah's job was to take away sins. Or you'll notice in none of those passages does it say anything about this, this heir to King David, um, you know, buying off the father's wrath. There's no talk about Adam and eating the apple and original sin and the fall and none of that. This is very, this is very focused on reestablishing a Jewish physical kingdom. 
Um, and that's what the Messiah was. That was the predominant view. And you can't underestimate that view because when you get to the time of Jesus, there's a lot of people who are trying to literally build a physical kingdom. Let me give you my little chart here I made. No, no, no. There we go. Uh, I made up a little chart for you. Income, not, not fully complete, but this is the major political divisions in Jesus' time in what's now Israel-Palestine. There were different visions for how the Jewish people should respond to the Roman occupation. Should we, some said, just kind of play along to get along? That was probably most of the people. Uh, Rome was very powerful. They could be extremely brutal. Most people probably made do, but they hated it, but they made do, right? But you had other groups as well. Uh, you had the zealots. The zealots were probably one of the biggest of these groups. Excuse me there. Pro the zealots were probably the biggest group. They believed in armed revolution, and they were just flagrant revolutionaries, overthrow the Romans, overthrow King Herod, who was the Jewish puppet king, uh, who basically ruled under the Romans, and establish a Jew Jewish kingdom. They were totally in on using violence, and they planned violence, they plotted violence, they organized violence. Uh, there would be little flares of rebellions around the countryside from time to time. Most of them, up to the time of Jesus, were fairly small. But that's who the zealots were. And the zealots, uh, Simon Peter, you can see, who was one of the disciples, was a zealot. Uh, and so Jesus had in his midst a armed revolutionary, a man who believed in violent overthrow. And um, he also had uh, in his midst another violent revolutionary uh, named Judas Iscariot. And he was one of the Sicarii. Sicarii is Latin for dagger. So what it means is they're the dagger wielders. It was a name kind of given to them by the Romans because their strategy was uh, to assassinate covertly Romans and Roman sympathizers. So they, where we get that phrase cloak and dagger, they literally would just hide a dagger in their cloak and go walking down the street. Everybody had their cloaks and they would come up behind the Roman sympathizer or the person they thought was a spy or the Roman official if they could get to him and they'd just pull out their dagger and they'd stab him in the back and tuck the dagger in and scurry away down the alley and the Roman would be there dead. And the message was, uh, watch your back because as long as you are occupying our country, you will never be safe. And that's what Judas Iscariot was. He was one of them. Uh, he was in that group. The Bible doesn't ever talk about him actually assassinating people, but the name Iscariot, it's not a family name. Uh, it's a title, you know. It would be like Jim the, I Jim the ISIS guy or Betty the Al-Qaeda or, you know, John the, the IRA, of the IRA. I mean, these were groups like that. You were named after your group. Jesus had them in his disciples. There were a couple other groups, political factions. One was the Essenes. They were kind of a, let's get out of town, go out to the desert, purify ourselves, and await for God's judgment to fall. And we have their books, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they were written by the Essenes. And um, we don't know for sure if there's no explicit mention of Essenes in the New Testament. Some speculate John the Baptist was. We can't really prove that. 
Um, there's no, also no indication that any of Jesus' disciples were Essenes. And um, then, of course, there's Herod. He's the Jewish king, but he's really kind of a puppet king. He works under Rome. And then, of course, you have the priests. And the priests are really focused around the temple. They weren't like out in the countryside running synagogues. They were very focused around the temple, temple sacrifices. Uh, they were extremely wealthy, but they were allowed to exist because of Herod's deal with the Romans. So it was kind of a, Herod, if you'll let us rule, we'll let you keep your priests, but don't get out of line. And then, of course, the Romans who occupied the country. So all these political groups are existing, and Jesus is coming in with this mix of really hot politics that's going on that he's got to deal with. And he's got this among his own disciples. And one of the things that's become more and more clear to me, I think, over the years is the extent to which uh, Jesus' disciples uh, were probably much more of the zealot kind of way of thinking than they were of our modern way of thinking of Jesus being a spiritual Messiah who had a sort of spiritual kingdom that ruled in our hearts, that kind of stuff. I really think Jesus' followers were much more of the physical, literal kind of thinking. Um, they even ask, I forgot to bring this verse up, but uh, in the beginning of the Gospel of Acts, Jesus has died, he's resurrected, and right before he ascends into heaven, they ask again, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So even after everything, even after he died and was raised, their thinking has nothing to do with sin. It has everything to do with it. They're still thinking of physical kingdom. And Jesus has to tell them, no, um, you know, oh, good Lord, I've been talking to you for three years. You don't get it. That's a paraphrase. But they're still clinging to that idea. So I've come to think more and more that Jesus' disciples were much more into the expecting Jesus to start a revolution any day now. And that as they walked around with Jesus and he talked and he healed and he cured, cast out these demons and all that stuff was probably fine and dandy in their minds. But I think a lot of them were still thinking, okay, when's the revolution going to come? When do we take up arms? When does this start? You know, all this stuff about, you know, Samaritans and prodigal sons and all that stuff. That's all nice. When is the kingdom going to start? There is no indication in any of the scriptures of any of the original 12 disciples talking about dying for sin. They also don't talk about that. Um, but Jesus is in this political hot soup that he stepped into. And, um, and that's the tradition he's inherited. That's what he's walked into. So, uh, let's keep going here. Look a little bit. And um, I'll switch over. There we go. This is the Palm Sunday story, right? I think this is really pivotal in understanding Jesus and people's expectations of him as an er becoming an earthly king, a revolutionary. Um, again, here's what we read on Palm Sunday. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road, and he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Again, let's step back here and take a look at this, right? This is Zechariah. It's right out of Zechariah, right? Jesus is following that cult in there. So if you were a person who knew your scriptures and you knew Zechariah, and you knew also that David himself came into Jerusalem on a donkey, as did his son Solomon, as did Zechariah say the future would, and now you see Jesus coming in, and he's coming in on a donkey, bing, 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 the symbolism, it all lines up. Clearly Jesus is going to be the revolutionary who's going to start an overthrow of the government, right? And what are they saying? Blessed is the king, not blessed is the spiritual leader, not blessed is the future sacrifice who's going, to buy off, who's going to buy off the Father's wrath. He's a king. They're cheering for a king. That's what they're hoping he is going to be. And because they've seen these deeds of power, because they've seen the miracle cures and the healing and the feeding of the 5,000, even though all of Jesus's, uh, even though every miracle that he did was a very nonviolent kind of soft helping miracle, they look, I'm, you know, people, we see things through filters in our minds, and if what you're looking for is proof that this guy really is the real deal and he really does have divine power, watching him do divine power is, it, it didn't get translated as, oh, look at he's not using violence, that means he's not violent. They saw it and said, oh, he has power to do, he has power over demons and things, he must definitely have power to do violence right? We see things through the lenses we want to see them. I think people saw Jesus and again still saw a revolutionary. And then you get that line down in 39, right? The Pharisees, they're, they're in the crowd. Um, in some versions it's the priests, but uh, and they're looking down and they're telling Jesus to stop. Why? Because this could lead to a riot and this could lead to a revolution and the Romans dealt with revolutions by wiping whole cities and countries to the ground. Um, genocide was a perfectly normal Roman response to rebellion. Uh, they did it in Sparta, for example. You can go to Sparta today, there's nothing but a little bit of rubble. Uh, the great Spartan civilization was wiped out. Uh, Athens gave in to Rome, let the Romans march in. That's why Athens is still there. Sparta, they formed an alliance against Rome and the Romans mowed them down and killed every single man, woman, and child and wiped the entire uh, whole Pen Peloponnesian Peninsula to the ground. So the stakes are high. If you're going to rebel against Rome, you better win or you're all going to die. And I think the Pharisees are smart enough. They're making the calculation, Jesus, it's okay if you want to cure people, but if the Romans start thinking you're doing a revolution, if your followers decide that, they're, that, that, that you are a revolutionary and they start taking up arms, Rome will come in and wipe us all out. Tell them to shut up. Put a damper on this. And Jesus says, look, I can't stop it. I can't stop it. You know, the, the people are going to shout out because of the oppression that they've been suffering. You, you can't, I, I, yeah, I can't silence them, right? It's a, this is, this, the problem is, in a sense, almost bit out of my hands. So there we go. So Jesus is now doing it. Um, let's keep going. We'll just keep going. Matthew 26. We're going to jump to a different book of the Bible now. Here we go. Matthew 26, 47 to 52. All right. 
While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him. At once he came to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you are here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Suddenly, one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. This is Jesus' arrest, right? Uh, the setting for this is kind of interesting because the Mount of Olives, it's still there. You can, there's still olive, some olive trees there. You can go there um, and see it. Um, it, was a, it was outside the city limits. Why was Jesus outside the city limits? Unless he's trying to evade the authorities. And if Jesus is trying to evade the authorities, does that mean that Jesus maybe isn't planning to die? I mean, if you just wanted to get killed by Rome, that was easy. Run into Rome, say, I'm the new king, death to Caesar, you're dead. It's really simple. Um, but instead, Jesus takes his, goes in during the day when he's got a crowd with him, right? So he's got this crowd to buffer him. Then at night, back out to the mountain, hiding under the trees. And the other thing that's interesting is there actually is a footpath uh, over the mountain. There's just a little trail. Uh, and all Jesus would have had to have done is when he saw the torches and heard the clang, clang, clang of all the Roman army, army coming up the hill, all he had to do is grab his disciples and go, run over the hill. Because the Roman infantry was not a quick infantry. They were a slow, heavy infantry. Clunk, clunk, clunk. A bunch of guys in cloaks could have easily scurried off into the desert, uh, avoided arrest. So, but Jesus sees them. They're all coming. Uh, and Judas What's interesting is they, they, have to, they want to know exactly which one is the one they're looking for, which is kind of interesting. Why weren't they just going to wipe out all the disciples? That would have been a more typical Roman thing. But for whatever reason, they're looking just for Jesus. So Judas gives them the kiss. That's how they know. Um, and then we get the sword scene. Then we get the sword scene, right? One of the disciples with Jesus, in one of the gospel versions, it is Peter who does it. And he takes out the sword, he cuts off the ear of the high priest slave. I've talked about this before, but in many ways, if you're a zealot and a revolutionary, cutting the slave's ear is a pretty lame, cowardly way to start the revolution. If you're going to fight back to save your Messiah, I would think you'd take the whole high priest with you. I, think you'd, I would think you'd go after those Romans. Um, or maybe it was just the case that you were a lot of talk and when you actually were standing there with armed guards with swords and spears, you weren't really that big. Um, and you, really, you kind of got a little bit scared and the high priest's slave is unarmed and just standing there. Poor guy gets his ear cut off. In one version, uh, Jesus welds the ear back on, just sticks it back on there. Um, and then you get the sword verse, right? Put your sword back, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so Jesus is here telling his disciples, essentially, we are not going to become a violent, we are not going to do a violent revolution. And this line of his is one of the least quoted of Jesus's uh, lines in America, right? 
Um, you know, Jesus doesn't say, take up the sword to defend yourself. Um, he says, put away the sword. Because I think he's right. If you live a life of violence, you usually will die by violence. If not you individually, as a community, as a collective, right? If we all raise up in arms, we will die by arms. The way out of this problem of the Roman occupation is not going to be with swords. And unfortunately, Jesus' words were not heeded. And twice after his death, there would be Jewish rebellions, and twice they would get shut down. The first one would come in 71, so another 41 years after Jesus, there would be a big rebellion, and the Roman Emperor Titus would send in his legions. It took a while. There's always a lag time, right? So they do their rebellion, they take over the city, see, we zealots have won, and then the Romans got to slowly move their troops over, and then the Romans uh, sacked the temple, burned it to the ground, and took all the money, uh, and took a whole bunch of Jewish uh, people from Jerusalem as slaves, sold off the Jewish people as slaves, used the money from the temple and the, the profits from selling the people, and built the Colosseum. So if you want to know where the money for the Colosseum came from, it was stolen Jewish money. Uh, and then again, in 121 AD, there would be a second rebellion called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, and Bar Kokhba means son of the star. So Bar Kokhba, let me fade this out here. Uh, Bar Kokhba would, he would actually be so successful that he would take over most of the country. Uh, and he had, had held power for almost a year and a half. They, print, they started minting their own currency that didn't have Roman gods on it. Uh, and then the Romans did as the Romans always do, and they sent in their legions. And 600,000 Jews were killed. Uh, in the Bar Kokhba rebellion. It was the biggest massacre of Jews until the Holocaust. And um, so both times Jesus was right. They would take up the sword, they would live by the sword, and they would die by the sword. Uh, the sword was not Jesus' solution. Uh, but what's interesting, and I guess what I'd like to notice here, was the extent to which Jesus' disciples, again, Three years in, Jesus is getting arrested. He's three years into his ministry already. They've been with him full time, like all day, every day for three years. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the stories. They've been taught the parables. And they're still going back to the sword and violence. So, uh, one more. Here we go. Fade over. Here we go. Jesus says, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen in, the, in this way? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not arrest me, but all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So, Jesus makes an interesting point. If I wanted to use violence, I, don't, don't you think I could? I could send 12 legions. I'd wipe Rome out tomorrow if I wanted. If that was the goal. If that was what needed to happen. If violent revolution was the answer, I would have already done it, folks. 
Don't you get it? Um, and so he says this has to happen in this way. It's what the scriptures say. Well, which scripture? Which one? What did it say? Jesus doesn't quote. He doesn't give you a chapter and verse here. So you're left ha we're left having to go back into the Old Testament and go, well, what verses was he talking about? Was he taught? And so was he talking about uh, all those many verses of the prophets that talked about this Messiah who would come and rule a kingdom? Are those the scriptures that must be fulfilled? Or are there other scriptures that need to be fulfilled here? Are there other scriptures that are going to be the ones uh, that we're talking about? Well, uh, that's when, at that point, as you notice, it says, all the disciples deserted him and fled. They all deserted him and fled. And, um, and so Jesus is left all alone to get dragged off to suffer. So this is, I, this is why I titled this particular uh, Bible study, this particular live stream, The Failed Revolutionary. Because, I, like I said in the beginning, I really have come to believe more and more that the disciples, they were much more of the violent overthrow, they were much more of the zealot school of thought than we've ever given them credit for, that they did not have any conception of Jesus dying for sins as we understand it today, and that Jesus, uh, they weren't listening to his teachings really very well at all. When Jesus said he wasn't going to be violent, they didn't take that seriously one bit. They didn't probably grasp what he was saying. And when he came to be arrested, and one of them made a lame attempt at trying to start the re revolution, at forcing the revolution, they all ran away. Now there's another theory about Judas along those lines that's kind of interesting uh, that says that part of why Judas betrayed Jesus in the first place was not 30 pieces of silver. I I've never been convinced by that, to be honest. Uh, revolutionaries aren't in it for the money. The true revolutionaries, they're in it for the cause. And they will give up and sacrifice any amount of money for the cause. They'll give their lives for the cause, right? 30 pieces of silver, that was nice. It's not that much uh, in the end of the day that you could just buy off a, a diehard revolutionary. A person willing to risk his life uh, by going out and assassinating people, because if the Romans found out that you were one of the Sicarii, you'd be on that cross too. So I've just never been sold that Judas was all about the money. He took the money, uh, but there's a theory that his motivation was much more to force the issue, that if he could get the troops right there in front of Jesus, in his face, threatening him, that at that point, Jesus would say, all right, now I guess we gotta fight, grab your swords, let's take out these Romans, let's begin the revolution. And that, when, and that that was what was motivating Judas all along. Who knows exactly, right? You're, you're getting into lots of mind reading. Can we really understand that? Or were Judas's motivations much more complex? But we know that he was violent, and we know that he had that background, and he was part of that organization. It certainly fits the personality, it fits his allegiances, um, that he had that kind of way of thinking. And so then, like it says, the disciples all scattered. Being a revolutionary, he was feared by the priests for potentially being a revolutionary. The disciples followed him because they wanted a revolutionary. The crowd cheered him for being a revolutionary. 
when the cross came, all that failed. But that's what makes, that's what makes Jesus, uh, you know, that's part of what makes the cross so interesting and so really multifaceted, I think. So, I uh, hope that's been helpful. I uh, hope that's been helpful and useful to you. And um, we'll go ahead. Uh, I'll be back again next week. I'll be back again next week doing this on Thursday morning. And we'll look at some more ways in which Jesus' death is understood and the meanings people have attached to it. So thank you all for tuning in. Hopefully I'll be a little smoother with my operations next week. Uh, I hope you all have a good week and are able on your Lenten journey to reconnect with God and uh, find some growth in the Spirit during this season. God bless.